I'm going to start off today's sermon doing something that probably every single one of my preaching professors in college would have told me, don't ever do that. Uh, I'm going to accuse you all of something. Uh, I'm going to accuse myself of something as well. I actually think that every single one of us actually loves, whether we think this is like okay to say or not, we love to judge people. Don't you just like love it? And, and, and we might be like, oh, yeah, that's, but it's really bad. It's like this guilty pleasure. Anyone watch HGTV? Watch House Hunters? My wife and I do something really bad. We just, like, mock the people on House Hunters. <laughs> you need two sinks. Oh, you can't buy this house because your bathroom doesn't have two sinks in it. I feel so bad. Oh, my gosh, you don't like the wall color. That's too bad you can't paint. Oh, like... <laughs> It just, so we judge people, but we have this, but even in a more serious way, I, I think there's just something in us that has this sense of like uh, right or wrong. We have our ideas of justice and you love to judge. I'm going to give you some examples. Can you put that first slide up, George? This showed up uh, on my doorstep the other day, a magazine that I subscribed to. That's a very serious judgment right there. I can, I, I'm sure you all know what it's about, and just in, in case you think that I just gave away my political leanings, this is a very nonpartisan uh, news subscription that I subscribe to. There's all sorts of things in there on all sorts of different perspectives. So it's a perspective, but we love to make a judgment. What's the next one, George? We love to make judgments. Anyone listen to the Serial podcast? Uh, anyone into that? No? Yeah, we've got one, wow, one serial listener. Do you guys know what this is? A couple more? Serial was this uh, podcast, and they were making, uh, they were trying to investigate uh, this guy who was potentially wrongly um, uh, accused of, of murder. He's been in jail. I say wrongly, people, my wife's, I've never listened to this. My wife was obsessed with this podcast. She's like, yo, he should not have been in prison. There was no physical evidence. There was, and, and so everyone's got their opinion, right? And we make judgments. The show makes judgments. This is what I think should have happened. Um, this next one here, you probably all have an opinion about. Um, is he the GOAT? Is he not the GOAT? Did he deflate a football? Did, does the deflating of the football matter? Does the, does, here's the part that concerns me. You guys are more passionate about this than someone maybe wrongly imprisoned and potentially our government uh, <laughs> needing serious reconciliation. I'll pray for all of you. That's another sermon we'll get into later. I set you up. That's right. Um, and, and then for me lately, I've been thinking a lot about children and judgments. Go ahead, George. You can put that one up. Oh, there's my little daughter. Yeah, you didn't think you're not getting away ever again with a sermon. Oh, that's my favorite right there. You can put that last one up. Mom and daughter are doing so well. Oh, it's a little dark on the screen. That's too bad, but they're doing great. Um, I, you thought you were going to get through a sermon, my first sermon back without me showing pictures of my daughter. You're crazy. Uh, I've been thinking a lot with her about, like, I just play scenarios out in my head, so I'm thinking about when she's older, and you parents with young kids know this, thinking about, like, how I'm going to need to, like, father and parent well in different situations, and I'm imagining and I'm noticing now, like, kids a lot, and, and they're playing, you know, this scenario plays out a lot, kids playing with other kids, and then someone just rips the toy out of the kid's hand. This is my toy now, and what's the kid do? They're going to do one of two things. What are they going to do? They're going to attack, <laughs> or they're going to run. I oh, took the toy, and I don't know what. 
And what do they want? What are they doing when they're attacking or they run to mom and dad? They, they want you to do something. You need to pronounce judgment over this other child, over my brother or sister, whatever it is. It sounds extreme, but it's the same thing going on with all of these things. We are making a judgment. We are pronouncing judgment. We love to judge. It is our, like, default setting. But how many of you know our human justice so often leaves us wanting? Let me, let me explain what I mean. Human justice is about accusing, is about saying, you did this, this was wrong, and as a result, we are going to do, uh, perform some kind of punishment on you. Often, we see this play out uh, in society where it leads to people being ostracized. If it's like extreme, like people go to prison, people come out of prison and they can't get back into the workforce and different things like that. They become a blight on society and on the community. Maybe even in a simple thing like with a child, maybe next time they, they had justice done and they got their toy back, but maybe they're not quite as trusting of their friend and they hold that toy a little closer. There's something that human justice is always going to leave wanting. A murderer may go to prison, but the loved one is still dead. There's something in human justice that leaves us wanting. It is accusation that leads to condemnation. That's what human justice is. It is accusation that leads to condemnation. It is a dead end. It is pronouncing that someone did something wrong, and that's about as far as we can go with it. On the other hand, God's justice is vindication that leads to restoration. Vindication that leads to restoration. And we're going to get into what that means shortly. But this is what the prophet Joel has been setting up in chapters 1 and 2. There's so much crisis. The people need to repent and and all this turmoil going on. And it is setting up the stage for chapter 3 where Joel is going to Uh, portray this idea of what God finally bringing final judgment is going to look like. Are you excited? Are you just so excited to hear about God's judgment this morning? I'm telling you there is good news in this, I promise. So I want you to to stay with me. So let's go and read Joel chapter 3. I'm going to have this up on the screen because I'm going to read this from a little bit of a different translation that I kind of like the way some of this lands. So, all right, Joel chapter 3, are you there? Here we go. For look, in those days and in that time, when I will return the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's a play on words, it just means God is judge. And I will argue a case against them, there concerning my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and my land that they have divided. For my people, they cast lots, and they traded the male child for the prostitute, and the female child they sold for wine, and they drank it. Now he's talking to some of the nations in particular. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all of the regions of Philistia? Are you repaying to me what is deserved? If you are recompensing me, I will return swiftly and quickly what you deserve on your head. For you have taken my silver and my gold and my beautiful treasures and you have carried into and you've carried it into your temples. And the sons of Judah and Jerusalem you sold to the sons of the Greeks in order to remove them from their border. 
Look, I am rousing them from the place where you have sold them, and I will return what you deserve on your head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans and to a nation far away, for Yahweh has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Stir up the mighty warriors. Let them approach and come up. Let all the men of war approach. Beat your cutting tools of iron into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am a mighty warrior. Hurry and come, all the nations from all around, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your mighty warriors, O Yahweh. Let the nations be roused, and let them come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations from all around. Send forth the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow because, of their, because their evil is great. Commotion, commotion in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars have withheld their splendor. And Yahweh roars from Zion. From Jerusalem he utters his voice and the heavens and the earth shake. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a protection for the children of Israel. And you will know that I, Yahweh your God, am dwelling in Zion my holy mountain, and Jerusalem will be a place of holiness, and strangers will pass through it no longer. And it will happen on that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the channels of Judah will flow with water. A spring from the house of Yahweh will come forth, and it will water the valley of acacia trees. Egypt will become a desolation, and Edom will become a desert because of the violence they did against the children of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. For, uh, but Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. I will cleanse their blood guilt that I did not cleanse, for Yahweh is dwelling in Zion. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you will illuminate your word, that you will reveal to us who you are and what you are saying to us as a people through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's going on that has led to this moment here in Joel? Just a really quick overview of where we've been. Um, there is a crisis right out of the gate. Does anyone remember what the crisis is? Locusts. There's locusts. Um, there is about to be locusts covering the land. Tim showed the, uh, the video of like a locust swarm in Madagascar. Was it Madagascar, that one? It's gross. They're like this big. They like eat their weight every day. Like it's, so they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they like destroy everything. They eat all, of, all the plants, everything. It's just awful. There was drought on top of that happening. It was an absolute crisis. Uh, some people say... Um, that the, there's a, like other, other nations from that time period, there are records that archaeologists have found that say these locust things didn't just last for like a year. These were like three long 
like three long years sometimes that these, these locust plagues would just be devastating the land. The locusts wouldn't last that long, but the effects would, there'd be no food for like three years. So there's a crisis that opens the book, a very natural, normal crisis, and Joel sees this as an opportunity for God's people to repent. We need to get back in alignment with God. There's something that this is, this is causing us to humble ourselves and realize that we need to come to God. And then what happens after that? There's another crisis, and this time Joel is seeing a crisis that's much bigger than just this locust infestation. He is seeing a crisis that goes deep. It kind of goes to the, the core of the human soul. He's seeing, um, the, he talks about the northern invader. It's like this idea like of a mystical army. That it, It's just this, this terror, chaos um, thing that can't be predicted. There's just this impending doom. You, you, anyone ever had that feeling, that just sense of impending terror and doom? It's usually on Sunday night, right, before work or school or something. I know. I know. I know the feeling. And so Joel addresses that deeper human base uh, instinct, and he's saying there's a deeper repentance that needs to happen. There is a deeper humbling of ourselves before God because he is doing something really serious here. And then after that, there's a promise of restoration and rescue. Tim talked last week about the pouring out of God's spirit. And in the pouring out of God's Spirit, it says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That word really is just like rescued. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be rescued. So that's where we're at now. There's a lot of really serious crisis stuff going on on a natural level we see in our world. It reflects this deeper kind of cosmo, uh, cosmic, like universal sense of doom and like not having... Uh, a hope and a future, and it calls us to cry out to God and the promise of his rescue and restoration. Okay, so that's kind of uh, the, where everything was in terms of the scripture. If you can go to the next slide there, George. There's this idea that keeps getting talked about called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And it seems like the day of the Lord happens with the locusts, and then it's like happening again with the next crisis, and we're going to see again. We read it again. There's another day of the Lord, and I think he says it like five times total in this book. So the day of the Lord, this, this Hebrew idea of the day of the Lord, there's like days of the Lord. It is the idea that God was leveling the playing field in a sense. Wherever there has been serious injustice or corruption or uh, people not following after God, the prophets use this term, the day of the Lord, just to mean this is going to be a moment where God is going to level the playing field again. He's going to bring restoration He's going to renew things. And there are like these little d days of the Lord along the way. And Joel is now kind of pointing towards, yeah, there's like these days of the Lord. Now there's like the day of the Lord, the ultimate leveling of the playing field, the ultimate restoration. And as we're going to see, the ultimate judgment of all people in all times, in all places, as he calls it, the nations. Another thing that we've obviously been seeing, like I said, there's poetic language. It's really weird. The moon turns to blood. I don't know if you've normally seen that. I've never seen that. That's strange. Uh, we're going to talk about this wine press thing today. It's poetic language, poetic imagery. Uh, there's been a lot of damage done throughout the centuries uh, by people who would preach these things very literally and teach these things very literally, it causes a lot of problems because it's not 
that kind of literature. It's like poetry, basically, and it's meant to be taken that way. So that's the other thing we've got to keep in mind. So we've got to kind of do some translating of these metaphors in our head. Uh, and then the final thing to know with this section, because we're going to see a lot of this, is there's kind of like prophetic plagiarism, I call it, on Joel's part. And what that means is the time when Joel wrote this, uh, scholars think maybe, there's no conclusive thing, he might have been one of the last prophets to write. Maybe. Because of what they see in the book. He basically, we're not going to be able to go through them all. There's so many. He literally is like stealing lines from all of these other prophets. So you can read it in the Bible, and then you get to Joel. I kind of like to think of Joel as the Cliff Notes version of the prophets. So... So you've got all of the, the repentance and the judgment and the day of the Lord and God's going to come and then ultimately it's all going to be good for God's people and God will dwell with them. Yay! And you get it in three chapters instead of like slogging through 65 chapters of Isaiah. And, but we're going to go there. Don't worry. We're going to go to Isaiah. So you have to understand that there's a conversation and a narrative that's been going on for hundreds of years when Joel's writing this and he's just kind of picking up on what everyone already knows and understands. And that's the annoying thing sometimes about reading the Bible, is you read something and it assumes that you know the 800 other references to this one thing. And you might not. So what we're going to do is do a little bit of that legwork as well today so you can see what I think is a really powerful um, image that God wants us to see of what his judgment looks like and how to enter into his way of doing judgment. So we're going to look at four sections here. and We're going to fly through a lot of this. So um, it's going to be like information fire hose here for a minute, okay? Just stick with me. So we're going to look at um, the first section here, which is the nature and extent of God's restoration. So how, what does this restoration look like? What is the nature and character of how God restores? Second, we're going to look at the behavior of God's enemies. How do God's enemies, what, what's, what do they do? Like, what, what makes them an enemy? What is that all about? Three, we're going to actually look at the actual thing that God does to bring justice. What does God's triumphant justice really look like? And then finally, what's the aftermath of that justice playing out, both for God's people and for God's enemies? <clears throat> so, right off the bat, let's look at restoration. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem in that day. So this is in the context of the Holy Spirit's just been poured out, uh, or he's promised the Holy Spirit. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued. There is rescue for anyone, excuse me, who calls on the name of the Lord. So he's saying in that day, when you're able to call on the name of the Lord like that to be saved, to be rescued, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel, and, and Judah and Jerusalem. For our purposes, you can really just read that as that's the people of God in all times and all places. We have to kind of do two things at once. Joel's talking about the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and prophetically, we're understanding this as applying to all of God's people. Okay? And he accuses right off the bat, he, he's like, I have to do some restoration here, and he goes right after accusing um, the, these uh, classic uh, Israelite enemies, the people from Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines. He's saying, you captured all of these people from Judah, which actually happened, these children, and you sold them off to a nation far away, to the Greeks. And so God's saying in this context of, I'm going to restore, he said, I'm going to have you guys be sold to the Judeans, and then they're going to sell you off. So this is weird. What's God doing? Is he condoning human trafficking and child slavery here in this passage. God's saying, that, that'll teach him. That'll teach him. 
you sell my people into slavery, I'll sell you into slavery. No, he's, he's not actually condoning. This is poetic imagery. So what's he doing? Go ahead and put that uh, next slide up there, George, for a second. Okay, so the star is where Judea is in Jerusalem, okay? He, they're being sold to the Greeks, but actually it wasn't Greece. It was like the Greek colonies along the coast of Turkey is actually where they were being sold to. So now what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to take you guys from here around that same area where the star is, and I'm going to sell you to the Sabaeans. It's the same place as Sheba, which is the exact opposite direction down on the coast of Arabia. So what's God saying here? He's talking about the nature of what his restoration looks like in all times and all places. When you call on the name of the Lord, restoration is so extreme. God's restoration is so extreme. You were way over here. Your circumstances were headed in this direction. I am going to send it as far in the opposite direction as I can, is what he's saying. This is how extreme and profound God's restoration for his people is supposed to be. So now we're like, really, as we're reading this, we're getting, oh, this, is, this restoration is serious. This is, there's a spirit being poured out. God's presence is being poured out. And we call on his name. And we're saved. He's going to restore us. This is extreme restoration. Even some of the grammar in there, um, the verbs, do not, this is like a very rare, like extreme kind of restoration. This is serious. So as, there's a lot of things we can talk about with that, but I want to just you to keep that idea of restoration, this extreme restoration in the back of your mind. Okay, um, second thing going on here. Uh, go to that next slide, George. We have uh, what I'm calling God's enemies. This is the, this is the nations. Like, what, what is it about these nations that they have to be judged? Okay, uh, a couple of verses here that are really interesting. Beat your cutting tools of iron into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Did anyone, did that like bells go off for anyone on that? And they go, wait, that kind of sounds, isn't there something about people beating their swords into plowshares and like the other way around? Yeah, he's quoting, he's quoting Isaiah, but like mixing it up. He's, he's being snarky. He's going to get real, he's going to get real snarky in a second, Joel, uh, with, with the next thing he does. But he, what's he saying here? He's talking about the nations. The nations don't want anything to do with peace. That whole Isaiah 2-4 passage is, is they will beat their swords into plowshares they will, uh, and their spears into pruning hooks. And it goes on to say, never again will they make war. And so Joel's saying the nations are interested in the exact opposite. They want violence. They want hatred. They want to find any... They're taking plowshares and they're like, how can we make this into a weapon? They're literally finding anything they can. Maybe it's like that child that gets the toys taken from them, and they go, what can I hit them with? They, they, they process this. They think through it. It's scary. It's scary. I don't know. What's ahead of me, guys? I need... <laughs> are, are you all with me so far on what's happening here and what, what Joel's saying? So he's saying, I want to do this extreme restoration. Here is what is in the way. There's these people who are crazy violent. Like, they are obsessed with being violent against God and against his people. They're not interested in, in how God wants to do things. They, they, want, they don't want to go into this way of, of peaceful living, agriculture, society. No, they're looking for anything they can get their hands on to make a weapon and go fight. This one is where Joel gets really snarky. Go to the next one here, George. Uh, let the weakling say, I am a mighty warrior. Here's the picture I want you to get in your head, okay? Imagine this, like, sickly, frail little dude, 
and he's like dragging this sword because he can't lift it. This is the picture with the word weakling here that Joel is describing. This sickly little guy, and he's like, I am a mighty warrior. Like, and he's like dragging this sword, and he's like, ah, hold, hold on. Ah. Like, people have seen like Monty Python and stuff like this. This is like how pathetic we're getting. But here's the crazy thing that Joel does. He, this is where he gets really sarcastic and snarky. The word I am that he uses there, the only time that I, there's a bunch of different pronouns you can use in Hebrew for I, the only time he uses it for human beings is right here. And it's the same I that God, Yahweh, uses to refer to himself in the whole book. So what's Joel saying? These people are pathetic, and they, are th- they think they're gods. They're like setting them up to be gods. This, this, is, this is the view of humanity that we need to get our heads into. People, we, we think we are so good and so self-sufficient, and I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and this is like railing against a lot of what we believe with our, and that's, this isn't about like work ethic or anything, but it rails against our American like can-do, self-sufficient, This is people, so not only people are like, no, 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 we're going to fight you, God. We don't want your utopian agriculture society that Isaiah is talking about. And they're also saying, I'm going to come fight you. Let me get my sword and just drag it across the ground. I will fight you. I am mighty. And you're like, really? Really, buddy? You you see the sarcasm that Joel's created. This is like pathetic, guys. Come on. You really think you're God? You can set yourself up to be self-sufficient like a God? This is why I love the prophets. They are so sarcastic. I understand their language on a deep level. Not the Hebrew language, their sarcasm language. So there's, here's, here's what's going on. You can go to the next slide. Um, the, what is being created here is this idea of like this echoes of Eden. There's like a contrast here between God's people who are starting to live in abundance and rescue and God's presence is there and everything like that. And he's going to judge the nations, which are the people who are setting themselves up against God. They don't want anything to do with God's way of humanity that is peaceful, that is uh, honoring the true God and not making ourselves God. They're all about taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to know good and evil. They want to know right and wrong. They want to judge by their own standard. Humans following God, God's way, it's like humble repentance. That's the posture that is being created here. There's humble repentance on the part of God's people, and there's prideful arrogance on the part of the nations being depicted here. So when we go to that next slide, George. Um, So what is being shaped is this war on this idea of true humanity. If true humanity is what God created in Eden, this peace-loving people, this love-thy-neighbor kind of people, then what the nations are doing in totality is exactly against it. They're tearing groups of people apart. There's disunity. They're perverting um, what was supposed to be good fulfillment in God's eyes. They're perverting it. So you've got disunity, they're tearing people apart. They're selling kids for cheap sex and booze. This is what he says. So they're, they're after some fulfillment and they're doing whatever it costs to get it. There's greed, they're stealing treasures from God's temple. Power, the pride power, we already talked about the, the mighty warrior thing. And the violence. All of the things that are like anti the way we were created to be. And so God's like, 
I'm, I'm done with this anti way of humanity. Do you, do you see what's happening here? You see what Joel's painting this picture of? So the question that we're kind of left with at this point in the story is we have to ask ourselves, how have I colluded with the nations? How have I been like the nations and not like God's people? And this is, as you're reading these kinds of passages, this is kind of the, the thing that Joel's trying to get at, like, do you see where each of us has this greed? We're giving into self-fulfillment. We want to twist what fulfillment really is. We're not in- interested in loving our neighbor, right? Jesus says, even if you hate your brother, you've killed him. Violence has such a deeper meaning. Where have we colluded with the nations? How have we colluded with the nations? And then we have a prayer. The prophet has brought us to this point. You can go to the next slide, George. Then there's this point where the prophet cries out, God, bring down your mighty warriors. Bring down, it's time. This can't stand anymore. This can't stand anymore. There has to be a better way. There has to be an answer. We have tried human justice and it has failed us. And so God says, I will sit and judge. I will sit and judge. So the question then becomes, how does God administer justice? That's, that's what we're left with here. So if, if our way of trying to right wrongs and things like that ends up falling short and feeling a little bit flat and empty, what is going on here? What is Joel getting at as a better way? So let's, let's dig into what actually happens here for this. Uh, next slide. Verse 13, go tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow because their evil is great. It says the sun and the moon grow dark. Yahweh roars from Zion, from Jerusalem. He utters his voice. It's getting, it's getting really, really, really serious. Okay, so this is the depiction. And there's even one more I didn't put up there. Commotion, commotion in the Valley of Decision. Joel doesn't even describe the actual moment of conflict and battle happening here. It's, like, it's almost like it's too graphic. It's too intense. And so there's just utter chaos. It's just a moment of complete and utter chaos as God begins to sort out and mete out judgment. All right, so it's still very unhelpful. He's crushing some grapes. What does that have to do with justice nowadays? I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to answer it for you right now. Uh, next slide, please. I have trodden the wine press alone. This is, this is really interesting. Trodden the wine press. He is again pulling from Isaiah. Joel loved to steal from Isaiah. It should be, uh, you can't get arrested for plagiarism, I guess. Maybe it's got to be really bad, but poor joke. I'm working on my dad jokes here. Hey, that worked. Uh, so go tread for the wine press is full. What's he, what's he saying? He's referencing um, a passage in Isaiah 63 that I just want to read to you real quick. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight it. So the prophet uh, Isaiah says, he, he sees this person coming, this great and mighty person. He says, who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in greatness and strength? And the person answers, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And, and then Isaiah asks again, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And then he goes on to explain that no one on earth was able, it's, it's obviously a depiction of God, and he's like, no one on earth 
was qualified to tread the wine press and judge the nations, and so I had to do it myself. And so he's all, he's got all this blood, essentially it equates the blood to the grapes and stuff like that. So he's like, okay, great. That's a pretty picture. His wrath has been poured out. And this is all connected back to another passage in Genesis where Jacob is prophesying over all his sons and blessing them, and he blesses Judah. And one of the things he says is that he's the obedience uh, of the nations shall belong to him. And he says that he washes his clothes in the wine uh, and his garments, are, and it goes on to talk about how they're getting red from the crushing of grapes. Interesting. Interesting. So this whole idea of this person who is going to crush the grapes and bring final judgment is happening, and Joel's alluding to it here. And then we stumble across, go to the next slide, Revelation chapter 19, and it's actually Jesus described. He's dripping, his garments are uh, dipped in blood, it says, and he goes and he treads the wine press. Okay, great. So Joel's prophesying about Jesus, so Jesus is going to come and crush people someday. What's happening? What's happening? Uh, go to the next slide. This is really interesting. This, was un- this has been understood in church history. That's from uh, the medieval era, uh, so it's obviously a medieval wine press, not an ancient uh, eastern, uh, near east, Near East wine press, and you can see Jesus there starting to be crushed, and then he's crushed. Pretty, very pretty picture. Uh, that's my sarcasm. It's not as good as Joel's, apparently. Um, so, so this picture is being created of this one, and Joel's referencing all of this prophetic material, saying there's one coming that can tread the wine press, that can crush. And, and can crush the, the blood and drain out the blood of, of the nations, and because of that, he'll rule over them. But then things get wonky. Like, the, the writer of Revelation is looking back on all this and seeing the life of Jesus and saying, oh, actually, maybe the blood kind of came about a different way. And they're looking back. Because look at, uh, next slide, please. Uh, he's talking about Yahweh roaring from Zion. This is what we read in Joel. The sun and the moon go dark. What stories do we know about everything going dark and someone shouting out? It's amazing, right? It's, it's all right there. It's not, it's not even, like, super complicated. We got Matthew 27. Darkness came over all the land until the ninth hour, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Matthew, Mark 15. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Luke 23, darkness came over the whole land because the light of the sun failed and the curtain of the temple was torn apart down the middle. And Jesus calling out with a loud voice. So suddenly we're reading this Joel passage and this is like, oh, this is a little different now. So where uh, the, the prophets are saying the, the, the wine needs to be crushed, Evil has reached the fullness. There can't be any more evil. It needs to be judged and dealt with. And we've kind of got our human ideas of justice in our head about how this is going to be taken care of. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and administers his justice very, very differently. What is happening? Go uh, next slide there, George. Instead of fighting on earth against all of the powers of violence and greed, and self-promotion, and power, and the perversion of fulfillment, and disunity. Jesus actually, in his death, speaks to all of these. It's incredible. 
even, even to the point of denying his, his deity, in a sense. We read in, in Philippians 2 where he says, even uh, uh, though he was God, he considered equality with God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why does that matter? What does this mean about justice? God administers justice by vindicating humanity's original purpose, by displaying how one was truly called to live when they are created in the image of God. And he says, that is displaying my justice. That is declaring and meeting out my justice. He was totally, if anyone ever had a right to be able to come onto the scene and begin to just start wiping out the baddies, he could do that, but he didn't. He said, let me model and actually vindication, think about it. Vindication means showing and proving that something actually was right. And in doing so, showing, here, let me show you this way of living, this love your neighbor way of living, this completely denying myself way of living. And I'm going to give ultimate judgment through this. So we ask ourselves, so wait a minute, hold on. So you're saying the cross and that's ultimate judgment? What is Jesus doing? He is modeling a way for us to live in this world and through loving our neighbor, as, just as an example, we are bringing justice to the world. He's proclaimed ultimate judgment. the cross, and in doing so, he sent out a change in history because we can look now to him and say, oh, this is the way we're supposed to live. And so his vindication brings restoration. And we begin to see, oh, there is a better way to live. There is a different way I can live. Um, th- this is so well illustrated in the story of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, September 1965, he was um, early on in the civil rights movement, and uh, he was taking up an offering in his church. There was a service, and they were uh, preaching against the segregated society that he lived in. And they heard from just down the street an explosion as um, segregationists had firebombed his home with his wife and children inside. The church poured out, everyone emptied, and they ran down the street. He found his wife and daughter were okay. And then you've got hundreds of angry African Americans. They're ready to start burning down the city. The police that were there tell stories of fearing for their life, a lot of them white men, and and fearing for their life and not knowing what was about to happen. And as the story goes, Martin Luther King stands up on this front porch with the fire blazing behind him. And he tells them, You cannot become violent. We have to forgive. And he leads them in singing Amazing Grace together. And they just worship Jesus. And then they all peacefully go home. Historians mark that moment as the turning point of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. 
It's amazing, isn't it? God's way, Jesus' way of justice. We choose not to be violent, not to take up hate, but forgive. Choose to love our neighbor. Other ways this plays out, obviously, not living in greed, living generously. Dr. King took up something that was the opposite spirit of the time, and it became significant and powerful. And I'm going to close this here in just a moment. So we're still asking the question, so does that mean we just love our neighbors and we're just going to get our butts kicked every once in a while and that's just how it is? if we're going to do it the Jesus way and do it his way of, of dispensing justice? No. No, no, no. There is still uh, the truth that there is a sense of an ultimate day of the Lord that is still coming when Jesus will return again. But there's also something else going on that Joel says here that's really important. And, and that's related to what happens after God's presence. What's going to happen, the after effects of this judgment. The cross has happened Judgment has been dispensed. Jesus is now over the nations because of his sacrifice. And it says that God's people are living with God's presence. They're in the city. They're in Jerusalem. And what's it say about it? You can go to the next slide, George. There's new wine flowing, milk, water, all of the things that were mentioned that were lost in Joel chapter 1, restored. And even more so, there's a spring coming from God's house. Places that were dry and desolate even before all of the chaos that happened are going to start to be watered. And there's going to be renewal even beyond things being restored. And then he says this, Egypt will become a desolation and Edom will become a desolate desert. So what's happening here? Joel is trying to explain to us that this is God's way, this is God's way of judgment. The nations have denied his way of living as humans. They say, we don't want it. We're rejecting your way of being human. And in doing so, they have denied themselves access to God's presence. God's presence, it's saying, God's presence is where human life can flourish. And human, humans become lifeless outside of God's presence is the picture that is trying to be created here. Now, so this, this is the moment where Joel is creating an invitation. You don't have to live in Egypt and Edom. Just another depiction of the nations. You don't have to live in the nations. I've created a way to be human that's real. It honors other people. There's a real way to be fulfilled in my presence through daily life. There's a, re a real way to see justice on the earth. None of this human justice that falls short and rings hollow. Vindication that leads to restoration. We have a choice. Do we want his way? Do we want his way of, of true humanity, of restored humanity that's been shown to us through Jesus? C.S. Lewis said this, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. What's he saying? He's, he's not talking about freedom like in the biblical sense. He's, he's saying in the, in the idea of free will and human choice. Hell is choosing I don't want to be human God's way.
And it brings it back full circle to what Joel has been saying the whole time. Repent. Even now. Even now, repent. Are you dissatisfied with human justice? You know, there's so many causes out there that are so important and that we need to pursue, and I believe Christians need to be at the forefront of these justice issues. And we need to be able to be people who are saying, are you dissatisfied with this human justice that you're experiencing? You ready for the real thing? Repentance, humbling ourselves, it opens the door to receive God's justice. We can say yes to the better way to live. The part of uh, Martin Luther King's story that's not usually told is what happened two days before the firebombing. He was sitting at his kitchen table, and he began to pray, and he said, God, I don't know if this, this is what you have for me, this pursuit of justice. I don't know if this is what you have for me. I, I'm not sure that I can do it. I don't know if I need it. He just began to pour out his heart to God. And he had this encounter with Jesus where he heard tons of things. Jesus just began speaking to him about how he was called to this. This was Jesus' battle for justice. And he, Jesus said to him, Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. It was a powerful encounter. It's not usually talked about. I've said before, I heard, I heard uh, one pastor say this, everyone wants the kingdom, the justice, all of those things, but they don't want the king. There is real justice. There is real restoration available, but it only comes with the king.